Right, good morning everyone. It's, it's a real privilege to be here this morning. The sun is shining, it's the Lord's Day, and we're back now to continue our study of Genesis. What a privilege it is for us all to be here and to experience this together. Last week we studied how Abraham continued to take matters into his own hands. He was making a mess of his life in that he wasn't fully trusting and relying on God. Together, he and his wife, Sarai, had devised a plan to help God out. And Hagar was involved, a woman who they had perhaps brought with them from Egypt, a destination he was never intended to go by God. Today we're going to continue and discover how God appears to Abram just when he needs to see him most. Just when his trust and faith in God as at a low ebb, God reveals himself to Abram and says, you need to be in a trust-based relationship with me. Now, you are going to need your Bibles and a notepad and pen because there are lots of Bible verses. So if Stephen would be so kind as to share out Bibles to anyone who needs one, and if you can reach into your bags and pull out your notepads and pens, that would be great. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you not because we are perfect, but because you are. Hide me, Lord, and please lift up Jesus, the all-sufficient one, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. We pray that your Holy Spirit will open our hearts and our minds to receive your message. Give us wisdom and understanding as we reflect on the truth as contained in your scripture, and that as a result, our lives will be enriched and we will have a new sense of purpose and direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. That's interesting. So, Apologies, it seemed that the first page of the sermon was there, but the rest had disappeared. <laughs> I thought, is that a sign from God? <laughs> yes, it would be fulfilling Helen's request for a 10-minute sermon this morning. <laughs> well, 24 years have passed since uh, Abram is in Haran. And he receives the recall, the second call for him to follow God's command and leave his hometown, his home people, and to go to the promised land. 24 years have passed since the second call we saw in Genesis chapter 12. The last 24 years of Abraham's life have been characterized by him listening to God, but him doing his own thing a lot of the time. The most recent example, of course, being that he got involved with Hagar to produce Ishmael. This was never God's plan, or so it would seem. 
Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abraham and Sarai are very advanced in age. 99 years of age. If Abraham lost sight of God's promises 14 years ago, when he and his wife Sarai were thinking about helping God out, how much more now, 14 years later, at the age of 99, will they be thinking that all is forgotten and that God cannot fulfill his promises? It's at this very, very low point in Abraham's life that God reveals himself once more. When Abraham had forgotten the truth and thinks that all is lost, God reveals himself and he comes to Abraham to reassure him that he is still in control. Notice the name here that was in, the, in our Bible passage in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 17. It says that God Almighty, God Almighty. Now, as was alluded to by uh, Penny, this comes from the Hebrew term El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the Hebrew term which translates as the all-sufficient one. And it's the very first time that it's used here in Scripture. It's used around 48 times, but here is the first, the all-sufficient one. God comes to Abram and reminds him that he and he alone is the all-sufficient one. There's nothing that Abram needs to worry about or Abram needs to contribute in order for him to find what God alone can give. The same God who put the stars in the heavens and created the earth is the all-sufficient one. The same God who is the one who has made a promise to Abram and requires him to trust him. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. Now this term El Shaddai is often used in connection with God wanting to show and reveal that he is able to produce fruitfulness and multiplication. We see this term, for example, used in Genesis chapter 28 and verses 3 and 4 when Isaac sends Jacob to Laban in the hope of finding a wife. And again, in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 11, we see that God reminds Jacob that he will be the cause of Jacob being fruitful and multiplying. These are just two examples of God using his name, El Shaddai, in reference to multiplication and fruitfulness. You see, whenever God chooses to reveal himself with the name that he chooses, it is because he wants to show the person who he's revealing himself to a characteristic of himself. God was using a name to show Abram that he is a God that can do the impossible. Abram could depend on God. Abram could trust in God because he was the one who could provide the all-sufficient one. Now, when you see here that God instructs Abram to walk before him and be blameless. But what does it mean to walk before God and to be blameless? Well, I was really blessed last week when Grace delivered the kids' talk 
And um, those of you who weren't here, I'll just give you a quick summary of it. it. She invited several parents to come forward with their children. And Ben and Harrison came forward and involved this little experiment whereby they were walking together. Harrison was blindfolded. He couldn't see. And Ben was standing behind him, his loving father, giving him instructions as how to move forward. If Harrison believed and trusted his father, he would make it to the back of church and back again safely. But whenever Harrison decided to do his own thing, he might actually find himself in, uh, in line with a chair perhaps and would have to listen to more instructions to kind of get him back on track. So as long as Harrison listened and obeyed, he would follow the right path and walk just before his father. Now, I believe that God wanted the same for Abram. He longed for Abram to walk before him, listening and obeying him. Now, this idea of walking with God is not new in Genesis chapter 17. We see that a number of patriarchs in the Bible and in Genesis in particular, have walked before God. Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 and 24 tell us that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God. He listened and obeyed in a way which, pretty much like the picture of Ben and Harrison last week, Enoch placed his complete trust in God and lived a life of obedience. He followed in the steps he was instructed to. Likewise, we also know that Noah was also a man that walked with God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 tells us that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. We know that Noah was not perfect. He was a sinner like me and like you. But that's not what God means by us being blameless. Another man that God refers to as blameless is Job. And in Job chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and turned away from evil. Was Job a sinner? Absolutely. But what made Job and Noah blameless was an attitude of heart that leaned towards God and to his will. Philippians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among, you, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, when we follow God's will for our lives and follow the prompting of his spirit, we live lives that are pleasing to God because we are responding to the spirit that lives within us. So Abraham was reminded that he needed to walk with God and to be blameless in order to, for him to enter into the blessing of the covenant. Anything less than complete surrender to God would not provide the blessing that Abram sought. 
And what was the blessing promised? It was for Abram to be multiplied greatly and that from him would come forth the blessed Messiah. At this announcement, we see that Abram literally falls to his face. He falls to the ground prostrate on his face. And this is a clear indication of the respectful repentance and awe that Abram experiences. By falling on his face, he was in a position of submission to God, a position that showed he now truly, truly sought to follow what El Shaddai had planned for him all along. Notice now in verses four and five, something I find particularly beautiful. God now tells Abram that he will be a father of a multitude of nations. Previously, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God told Abraham that he would be a father of a nation. Now this has been increased to becoming a father of a multitude of nations. Now to reflect this change, God decides to give Abraham a new name. And this act, I believe, is so beautiful because it restores Abram in a way that nothing else could. You see, Abram's current name meant exalted father. Abram, exalted father. And for 86 years, that name taunted him. I appreciate for 86 of some of those 86 years, he was a child and perhaps uh, maybe not so much, but for 86 years, he was called exalted father. And here he is, a man who cannot have children. When he finally does become a father, a father to Ishmael, it's hardly through exalted means. It's through him placing his own trust in himself rather than in God to provide. So this name, Abram, exalted father, was not a name that sat well with him because it reflected something that he was to aspire to that he never did. And I think it's really beautiful that God actually changes his name from exalted father when he wasn't and makes him into Abraham. Finally, we get a chance to call Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> the name Abraham, of course, means father of a multitude. And I think that's really special to remember really important for us to consider that he changed his name to reflect who he wanted him to become, not who he was never. He was never an exalted father by conceiving Ishmael through Hagar. Now, a few weeks back, we were blessed with a wonderful sermon from Ben that talked about the links between Abraham and Christians today. And we see the, in that sermon, we saw the fulfillment of Abraham becoming 
a father of a multitude of nations. And I would urge all of you for us all to go back and listen to that sermon again via the uh, church website and uh, those of you on Android on the church app. Um, we would be blessed again to listen to this sermon because it has so much relevancy to this passage that we're looking at today. God transforms Abram and makes him Abraham and makes him now a father of a multitude of nations. He promises to make Abraham exceedingly fruitful and promises that kings shall come from him. A reference to Jesus, of course, perhaps. But there is one outward sign that God requires of Abraham to show his commitment to the covenant and that commitment is through circumcision. Now this is the very first mention of circumcision or Brit Milah as it's referred to in Hebrew scriptures. And we read here that God intended for it to be performed on the eighth day. Now this was going to be a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and all of his descendants were to follow. For the Israelites, this was a symbol of God's covenant with Abraham and it was to be a covenant that would last with his descendants. It symbolized the physical and spiritual continuity of the Israelite generations. Through circumcision, a person became a member of Israel's community and received the right to participate in public worship. In the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, we find that the privilege of circumcision was also extended to any strangers who lived within the Israelite community and wanted to join them. Now, during the wanderings in the desert, the children of Israel had forgotten the covenant made with Abraham. And Joshua chapter 5, verse 2 to 9 tells us that upon entering the promised land, the Israelites were called again to practice circumcision. Until this rite was observed, it was impossible for God to apply his covenant to their people, to their children. Now, it's important for us to remember that nowhere does the Old Testament teach that circumcision saves a man. It was only ever intended to be an outward symbol of the covenant between God and men. It was to remind men of the inward circumcision of the heart that accompanies true salvation. Look with me at the following passages, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring among them. You above all peoples as you, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Again we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30, just a few pages further forward. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God 
will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God is looking for hearts that are open to receive him. God is looking for hearts that want to be in fellowship with him. The Apostle Paul, speaking in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, gives us a clear indication why Abraham received circumcision. It was because of what had already been done in him by God. I'll read for you Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. For we see that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after being circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, as we know, Paul spent a lot of time and effort agonizing over Christians who had thought that the act of circumcision itself had some power to save them. We see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. Galatians 5, verses 2 to 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith through working through love. It would be time well spent this week if we were to reread the book of Galatians and also the book of Acts chapter 15 so that we can see how Paul responds to the Jerusalem council regarding the false teaching of Christian circumcision and the attempts of men to trust in their own strength for salvation. The book of Philippians Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Paul tells us in unequivocal terms that believers today are in a new covenant and that of the true circumcision. 
Philippians chapter 3, 1 to 3 states, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Friends, our hope, our only hope, is in Jesus. We can only find salvation in him. We can only be saved because of what he has done. He is the all-sufficient one. He is the one that provides it all. We simply believe and accept by faith. Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 to 15 tells us, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rules and the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by, tri by triumphing over them in him. The entire body of sin, the old nature, has been put off and we may live in the spirit but not in the flesh. Friends, this is the best news that we could possibly wish for. Jesus is all sufficient. He is all that we need both now and forever. We need him daily dwelling within us through his spirit that we may live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Now there's something else I want you to draw your attention to here in reference to circumcision and we've explored a lot in Genesis and we've seen a lot of how modern science is catching up with the Bible with regards so many facets of uh, God's creation. And here in this covenant of circumcision, again, we are seeing modern science catching up with something that God instituted thousands of years previously. According to modern med medical understanding, blood clotting is dependent on three factors. The first being platelets, the second being uh, prothromibin and vitamin K which is responsible for prothromibin production and is produced from bacteria in the intestinal tract. Now very interestingly the eighth day something very significant and special happens within a child. The levels of all three of these factors are actually at a peak the levels of each of these is at a peak. The prothromyobin is actually at a peak over 100% of the normal level for a, for a child and an adult. It's remarkable to think that God in his infinite love and wisdom would provide a covenant involving circumcision 
and specify the day when it would be optimal for it to be carried out. Before the eighth day, there is a serious risk of hemorrhaging because the child has not developed the ability to clot in the, in the, in the required factor. And beyond that, the levels of prothrombin are actually lower. The eighth day is optimal. God takes care of all of the details. We just need to trust him. If God could be so certain about this and in his infinite love in, and goodness institute a covenant of circumcision to be performed on a day that was optimal, then we know that El Shaddai is all sufficient. We can trust him with all things. So how can we apply this to our lives today? How can we apply what we read here? Well, I think it can be summed up in four words. God is all sufficient. Whatever the situation we're facing, whatever life throws our way, we do not need anything else to rely on except God. He is all sufficient. Matthew Henry reminds us, we have no sufficient strength of our own. All our sufficiency is of God. We should stir ourselves to resist temptation in a reliance upon God's all-sufficiency and the omnipotence of his might. You see, friends, when it comes to our salvation, Jesus' death and resurrection is all-sufficient for our salvation. When it comes to our daily lives in a world plagued by sin, Jesus' strength is all-sufficient to overcome our weakness. When it comes to our lack Jesus' power is all-sufficient for the struggles that we face. When we stumble and fall, Jesus' strength is all-sufficient to raise us back up again. When we doubt, when we're confused, Jesus' loving wisdom is all-sufficient to direct our steps. Friends, Jesus' grace is all-sufficient for everything. All we need to do is come daily and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are all sufficient. Father, forgive us for the times where we have placed our trust in ourselves and we have thought that we can do your will through our own strength or that we can live for you in our own power. We know, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for us. And we ask and pray that we will humbly listen to your word, listen to your will, and follow as you direct. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to touch and anoint each and every life here, Lord, that we will seek you first, we'll place our trust in you, and no matter what it is you ask of us, Lord, we will know that we can trust you. This we pray, Lord, in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.